Welcome to the Computational Intelligence Podcast. My name is Thibaut Repel. I'm a faculty affiliate at the Codex Center at Stanford University and the creator of the Computational Antitrust Project, which explores how legal informatics can benefit antitrust law. The project gathers over 55 competition agencies and 35 academics in the advisory board. Each month, we publish an article on the subject of computational antitrust. You may find them at computationalantitrust.com. Today, I am thrilled to be receiving Anthony Casey and Anthony Niblet, who co-authored the paper for us entitled Microdirectives and Computational Merger Review, in which they explore how computational tools may be used to improve merger notification and review. Anthony Casey is the Deputy Dean at the University of Chicago School of Law, where he is a Professor of Law and Economics and the Faculty Director of the Center on Law and Finance. Anthony Niblitz is an Associate Professor and Canada Researcher Chair in Law, Economics and Innovation at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. To both of you, welcome and let us get started immediately. You published your article with us about two weeks ago and you actually presented your paper during our annual conference this year. Uh, but still, could you summarize the paper in just a few minutes for our listeners who have not yet had a chance to read it? Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at that. Um, so Tony and I have done quite a bit of work on uh, how predictive technologies can uh, be used to improve the law and how they will change the structure of law. And we had this paper a few years ago called The Death of Rules and Standards. And basically we said that as predictive technologies improve, we're going to see uh, less reliance on rules. Rules tend to be coarse and, and over-inclusive and under-inclusive. We'll see less reliance on rules and less reliance on vague standards as well. And what we'll see is as the... Um, as, as predictive technologies improve and the level of data improves, um, we'll see a development of a new type of law called the micro-directive. Um, and we thought, well, we'll see if we can apply this thinking to merger review. And merger notification and merger review typically has both rules and standards. And in our paper, we explore different ways in which predictive technologies could be used to improve merger notification and review. So for example, in merger notification, it's usually a lot of bright line rules. And sometimes you get lots and lots of mergers uh, that have to be notified that are really you know, quite inconsequential. They don't have many competitive concerns. But you've also got the other concern of ones that fly under the radar, they don't need to be notified, um, that do have some uh, high level of competitive concern. And our main point is, if you can do a better job at predicting what the competitive concern is, then you can move away from these course rules, you can improve the standards, and you can improve um, merger notification and review. But we are skeptical of the idea that we could ever have a fully automated merger review system. And the source of our skepticism isn't that we're not going to have enough data or there's, you know, problems of technological feasibility or questions of legitimacy and, uh, legitim legitimacy and trust. You know, they are all very important problems, very important problems. Um, and, and, you know, it's not going to be perfect. But the biggest hurdle, the greatest hurdle for us um, would be trying to pin down exactly what it is we want merger law to do. Trying to work out what that objective is that an AI algorithm can optimize. And if we as humans can't agree 
on what the objectives of merger law are, it's going to be very difficult to put that into an AI algorithm for, some, for it to optimize something. I don't know if we want to add to that, Tony. I'll just add, you know, I think this is a, a, a general problem for law, um, but I think it's, it's especially acute with antitrust because as, as we point out in the paper, um, while some areas of law, we don't know exactly what the law is trying to accomplish or it's hard to state, as we wrote this paper, we realized it's very clear there are many different views that people hold of what antitrust law is supposed to do. It, 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 there's for almost for as many people thinking about antitrust law, there's as many possible objectives and purposes, <laughs> which really makes it a, a special challenge here because um, the likelihood of, of coming to that both agreement and definition of the purpose that the data is going to serve it, uh is so unlikely. Like it, it, that seems so hard. Well, there there is actually there are actually two questions that comes to my mind right now. The first is, don't you think that AI could actually find what will be the objective? Um, and if so, do you think that the human race will be okay with that idea? Which is question number one. Question number two: Isn't it the beauty of it that indeed the the biggest hurdle, as you said, is you is to to find what is the objective of merger notification? It seems to me that we see there is a constant balance, or at least back and forth, between using some new tools and actually impacting the substance of what is antitrust. And it seems to me that it, it could be the most useful things to do right now, which would be to indeed say, okay, when we do merger, that's the way we do it. So. What is your take on those two? So, on the, on the so I'll take the point, first part. Can oh, <laughs> go for it, Tony. So I, was, uh, I imagine we'll say the same thing. But on the first one, um, to the extent the the data can tell us what the purpose is, if I understand that, what it does is it tells us what the purpose has been. So if we look at what we've done in the past, we can uncover what it was we were optimizing. You know, maybe consciously, maybe unconsciously. And this is again true across law. You can say. If you look at the, the decisions in this area, what is the thing that is consistent that they achieve? It's X or Y. Um, so certainly I, I do think that's possible. The, the question is, if we see that, do we like it or do we say, oh, that's what we've been doing? And, and if you look at antitrust kind of in politics and academics today, you know, even without knowing what, what exactly the data shows that we've been doing in the past, people are heatedly debating what it should be doing. There are so many different views. And I don't think data can tell us that, right? Like it can't tell us, oh, A is right and B is wrong on policy. Uh, it can just tell us what, what we've been doing in the past is this or that. Yeah, which which already will be very useful, right? I remember having a discussion with Bill Kovacic, the former head of the FTC, in which he explained that uh, in the early 2000s, the FTC actually using consumer welfare standards went after companies, not for prices related uh, practices, but for decreasing innovation. So it seems that even when it comes to the last 20 years, we've forgotten that sometimes the objective of antitrust wasn't always to, to lower prices. Uh, but uh, Anthony, I think you wanted also to react to, to potentially yeah. that. I um I am a little you'll see from our paper that I'm a little skeptical of the ability of AI to be able to tell us what the objective is. You know, we talk about how AI can improve uh, a given objective by trial and error, but you have to know what an error is. You have to know what the error what be able to identify an error. And if my error, if what I think is an error is what you think 
is a perfectly fine decision, you know, that's, AI is not going to solve that. We're not going to be, you know, we're, we, we have to be on the same page as to what an error is. We have to have the same objective. We have this, this line that we've, we use quite a bit, which is, you know, if you're in a self-driving car, you have to be able to set the destination and the humans have to be able to set that destination. It's not going to be the car that's setting the destination. The car might find the best way to get there, but it has to be the yeah. human that sets the destination. I'm, I'm smiling because I'm just imagining a car that would say, nope, today you're not going to work. You're going to go to your grandma because she needs to see you, right? <laughs> but on, <laughs> on, that note, on that note, I mean, to the, to the point about knowing what, what it's been in the past, my phone does say if I get in a car at a certain time, you're probably going to work. Here's how long it takes. So that's yeah. the... You know, this is what you've done at 9 a.m. on this day, every day, of the, you know, in the past. And the question to your point is like, no, but today I don't want to do that. And that's where the AI can't, can't help us. Indeed. And I think, I think Tony's response. And, and so in our paper, we're, we're, we spell out that there's different ways of thinking about this problem, different types of data that you can use. And they, they're essentially different prediction problems. The, the data that Tony's talking about, where we look at our past decisions and then try and predict what the agency would do for this next decision, basically doing a comparison to all the decisions that have gone in the past. I mean, that's, that's using the internal data to make a prediction to replicate what the agency is doing. And so the, um, the objective there is, you know, is essentially to try and make these decisions faster. But you're losing something. You're losing something. You're losing the dynamism. If there's new situations that previous cases haven't taken into account, you're not going to be able to adequately take that into account in, in that kind of prediction problem. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a balancing. And then that's where the, the, that human problem comes in is, well, how much do we want to have dynamism in the law? How much do we value speed, et cetera? And so there's still that human element. So that's that first type of data where you're using internal agency data to try and replicate what agencies have done in the past. And by the way, in almost every jurisdiction in the world, people are starting to, to start question what they've done in the past and start to think, well, actually, maybe we need to start, you know, being more aggressive seems to be the, the mantra for many, um, many agencies around the world. A different way of thinking about it is to actually look at the consequences of mergers and say, well, actually, you know, we, we allowed this merger in the past, these types of mergers in the past. And, and we as humans now think that that was an error or we didn't, uh, you know, we blocked a merger and it turns out that that would have been um, erroneous. That requires judgment calls on humans part to, you know, say, well, this was our objective. This should have been our objective. And this is what we want the system to maximize. That's the human problem. Yeah. And on, so on that, now what I would like us to do is to go through all the steps of, you know, a merger uh, process, because it seems that for the very first step, the pre-notification, we may find some consensus and that indeed computational antitrust could help, uh, but potentially it's not so easy. So the reason why I'm saying that, and here I quote, you actually give some very interesting numbers that I, would not, I was not aware of in the paper. Uh, and I quote here, over the last past two decades, the DOJ and FTC have received an average of over 1,600 reports of transactions each year. And you say that about 97% of those notified transactions are cleared without a second request for more information. And so against that, you argue for a tailor-made merger control regime using what you call the micro-directive that you already explained. Um, and 
explaining how it works, you, you, you start with the pre-notification and you envision a future in which the parties to a transaction could actually enter relevant information and receive what you call a almost immediate answer as to whether the merger can proceed or not, or at least whether or not you have to notify the merger you know, if you are above or below the threshold. And so it seems indeed that, and, and you explain that in the paper, when it comes to the turnover, you know, it's quite easy. And indeed, we could automate the entire process to know if you have to notify in the US, in Europe, in other countries. Um, but then again, we come back to the same. Can we, should we only take into account the turnovers, even to, to know whether or not you should notify the merger? And if we want to take more, meaning qualitative elements, how do we do that? So do you have any idea on, on this? So sure. I mean, so the, the simplest way of thinking about this is the, you know, the pre-merger notification is a screening mechanism. And for some, where it's below the threshold, essentially, we give that, a, you know, a bit of a green light at the moment. And for those where it's above the threshold, then you're required to give more information. But the numbers that you provide, that you, you repeated here, is suggests that, you know, for a number of mergers that are above the threshold, there's actually very low competition concerns. And so what we've, what we've got is this 30-day waiting period. We've got delay in the system. It's costly to do this. Perhaps you know, if you can come up with a better way of predicting whether there's something's going to be a high competitive concern or a low competitive concern, you could just make the notification regime a little bit more tailored. And you say, well, you know, in the past, these kinds of questions, these kinds of mergers have not raised much concern. And so, you know, the merger notification regime is no longer these bright line rules that are based on the size of the transaction and the size of the party, but they are based on more information that's submitted and basically allows for greater, um, you know, if we get the greater predictive power, then the, the, the thresholds are no longer bright line rules anymore. And so um, you were saying, what data do we need? I mean, I, we can talk more about, um, you know, the, 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 what kind of data, if we went the internal route, what kind of data have we required in the past, have the agencies required in the past? You, you, you can create a form and say, here's the kind of data we need, and we will give you um, a, a quicker answer, a quicker response. This is something that we've been trying to develop with regards to tax law in Canada, where you can just fill out a form and it compares your case to every case that's ever gone to court. So you can get an immediate uh, prediction as to how a court would do it, uh, how a court would resolve your case. And this is something that you know we could imagine being uh, put forward here on the notification uh, section. I don't know, Tony, if you wanted to jump in there. Uh, the only thing I'll add is, and, and that's kind of the, the, the beauty of the, of the micro-directive where Anthony started, because what you're doing is you're getting rid of a bright line rule without getting rid of the predictability. So the party can know earlier and quicker what, what the outcome is, even though there's not a, you know, if you hit this number, you're fine. If you hit this number, you wait 30 days. It's, you know, there's, there's no bright line rule, but you put the information in and now, you know, as you said, almost immediately. It, and, and it, it gives you less certainty, you know, months ahead of time, but more certainty when it really matters, when you are making the decision, you put the information in, you don't have to wait. And so the, the, it gets the flexibility of the standard and the, you know, 
yeah. X anti-knowledge and predictability of the rule together. And and that of course is nice for companies, right? This will prevent the, the years of discussions that they have sometimes before they drop the merger, uh, because the agencies would kind of say, you know, in private, it will not go through. Um, so it's it's better if you actually retract the merger. But it's also nice for the agencies. And what I have in mind here is that when when setting up the competition antitrust project, I had discussion with pretty much all the agencies which are part of the project on Zoom uh, or other software. I don't want to self-preference Zoom. Um, and what some agencies said to me is that, listen, we have just a few employees and we will never say it in public. So for that reason, I won't give name. Um, but I can tell you that all we can do is merger control because it takes so much of our time. All those notifications we have to go through before indeed we give a green light prevent us from actually going after anti-competitive practices, which is a big problem. And if you look at the case law very carefully, you would see that in some countries there are literally zero anti-competitive investigation right now uh, for the reasons that you explained. So the micro-directive is also, you know, it, it could actually be, you know, to the benefit of the companies and those agencies. And and that is great news, I suppose, right? That That is one of the projects why I think that competition architecture can go forward because it benefits all the parties involved. I don't know, Tony or Antony, if you want to react to that. No, I just, I'll just say I agree 100%. It's the win-win idea of it that makes it great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talk in, uh, you know, agencies are resource constrained. I mean, you, you spelled that out perfectly. The agencies are resource constrained. Are there ways in which uh, we can use computational tools to free up resources. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if they're doing all their time doing human merger review, you got to ask yourself, is there anything that we could do, any tools that we could use to help not necessarily fully automate the whole process, triage, and, you know, you know, provide like there's a 99% chance that this is going to go through. You know, do we really need to do, do that additional human review, spend a week reviewing that file in order to, um, ensure that that one percent. I, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's you know cost and benefits from doing this, and it sounds like you know if if agencies are resource constrained, there possible there are benefits here, and also in benefits to the companies too. You know, there's a real problem of uh, um, of the over inclusiveness problem from Brightline rules that it yeah. does delay, it does delay, and it does potentially chill you know beneficial mergers. Yeah, and of course, they cannot share information because if the merger actually is dropped, then it could constitute a cartel. So they have to send the information to the lawyers and the lawyer will actually, you know, anonymize the information, send it back to the other company. So uh, we could simplify all that. But now moving on to phases one and two, uh, we know that mergers actually create a uh, information asymmetry problem because the companies do have the data that the agencies need. So detection is generally not the issue. But time, the time constraint is the, is the, the main issue for, for the agencies. Um, and in fact, if, if you've worked in, in been involved in mergers, you know that often even the companies don't have all the data. Of course, they do have their turnovers and, you know, their, that what they think are their market shares. But it's really hard sometimes to know what is your competitor's revenues, especially when we talk about a segment which is not in the annual uh, evaluation of a company or the financial statement, and especially for certain geographical uh, markets. And so it, it, it happens that companies uh, um, actually struggle to calculate their market shares, and they may send, sometimes not on purpose, often I would say not on purpose, misleading information to the agencies. And so 
in this context, I'm wondering how do you see your system working? And, and more specifically, shouldn't agencies require all companies on the market to give them some information about their revenues, for instance, even though they may not be involved in a merger so that the agencies itself or themselves could actually calculate what is necessary? Um, <clears throat> yeah, well, uh, let me, uh, so I have a few reactions to that. So you're right, currently there's a data asymmetry problem and, and you know, whether this, whether this will be solved perfectly in the future, obviously not, right? So does it have to be perfect? No, but would it be better than uh, what we have now? Possibly. I mean, uh, we're, we're thinking you know, longer term, longer term. So uh, let's think about the predicting the consequences. What will uh, the data sources look like in 20 years time? What information will a resource, uh, will an agency have in 20 years time? I'm very optimistic that there'll be just lots more data about all sorts of things like, you know, real-time pricing and what have you. I think that you'll find a lot more um, data and much better estimates of demand in the future as, as data improve. Um, do, do I think that we should require uh, competitors to be... To, no, I don't think we should require competitors to be giving that sort of information. Um, I don't think that's that's necessary, but I do. You know, as uh, data sources from all sorts of places uh, improve, I think we just have a much better sense about um, some. You know, a lot of the tools that agencies use at the moment are trying to overcome the data problem, and a lot of what is driving our work is the view that, that a lot of these data problems are actually going to um, be mitigated somewhat as as we get better monitoring schemes and better uh, ability to understand how prices change and what have you. I Tony, I don't know if you wanted to jump in there. The only thing I'll add, you know, so I think obviously the, the pushback on a general requirement of all data to be provided to these agencies in case there's a merger you know, or you know, because your competitor as a deal uh, would be would be large, right? So there, that would be huge pushback. Of course, in the current world, competitors often voluntarily provide information because they want to have their you know, they have a view on it. Um, but that's going to be skewed. The the thing to think about though is you know, our, our, our in some sense our paper is you know, and I think all of computational antitrust is this idea that can we do better? Now, if we have humans looking at asymmetric information. You know, they're they're still at the same disadvantage, and if we now automate it or you know kind of dig deeper into the data using machine learning tools, um, if it's the same data, we're probably improving. You know, in in the sense of it's still imperfect, but we you know a human looking at asymmetric data might not catch things or might not see the trends where we're like, oh, over time we know that we can predict that this is the information we're not getting when this kind of information gets submitted. It actually means X is behind the curtain. You might find that out. And so you don't have to have perfect information. If you can use the information you have in a better way, that's an improvement, right? Yeah. And again, I don't, in all of this computational antitrust and just kind of this area of law, we always have to remember not to make the perfect the enemy of the good, right? Like improvement is improvement. And I, I think you yeah. would see that because you not only see things in the data you have, but you'd also find other areas where you might get data that's out there that you didn't realize was relevant that you don't need to coerce from someone. Yeah, and I, and I want to come back later on to this idea of uh, 
not going to from one extreme, which is humans involved in a process which is the ultimate black box, right? And we have data actually showing that depending on whether a decision is taken after the launch, it might be more lenient or you know more severe. And the same could be certainly said for, for merger control. But the other extreme would be to say, okay, it's just a machine. Um, and it's going to take care of it, you know, uh, entirely, maybe one day, but certainly not in the coming decades, at least not something that I can foresee. But to so it means that we need to strike a balance. And for that, we need to use the right data. Um, and this brings me to to the second part of your paper in which you give some more numbers, which I, I found to be fascinating. You explain that between 2001 and 2020, over 30,000 transactions were reported to the FTC and the DOJ uh, under the, the notification regime. And you argue that agency, agencies, which at least you know, to me makes perfect sense, should use that information uh, to actually create a data set that will help in training machine learning and, and better uh, reaching better decisions in a sense. And so here I do have three uh, tiny sub-questions, although they are very important in practice. First one, how long does the information stay relevant? Can we really use the information you know, related to a merger which was decided in, in 2002, for instance, especially if we talk about, I don't know, I mean, I was about to say smartphone, but look, they did not exist at the time. So this could be a good example. Sub-question number two, can the agency use information from another agency? Uh, let's say the DOJ will get in touch with the European Commission because they had you know, a similar merger in similar markets. And three, what new type of information would you advise agencies to collect for the purpose of in the future training their own uh, machine learning system mm -hmm. so again the first one is how long does the information stay relevant so i and that can be teased out from the data that can be teased out from the data so if uh if you have a series of features that you are collecting so if, I'm, I'm, you know, for, uh, neither tony or i have actually worked uh, in a in a merger review at any either any of the agencies but we know that they write up reports about each of the mergers. And so there's data in, contained in those decisions. And create a data set that contains all the, the, you know, the valuable, what, what was going on in this merger? Why, why did we make this decision, et cetera? Create a, a data set of the, you know, that contains those features. Would a merger from 2002 be relevant? Well, it depends on whether those features are still predictive of agency um, of agency decisions. And so, you know, you could, you know, work your way backwards and you develop, train the data, uh, train the algorithm on, you know, up until 2017 and, and test it on post 2017 um, cases. And you see how accurate it is. If the, the algorithm is not very accurate at predicting what the agent is going to do, then you know, mm. these systems aren't that good. You know, you want to have high levels of accuracy, you know, at least 90% on some of these things, because you want to be able to say, this is, we're quite confident this is how the agency would predict it, would have, um, would but, have decided this. But then if you, if you look at it from the inside, right, if the agency is to decide based on its algorithm, yep. then they're stuck in the loop in a sense, right? Because Absolutely. it will be predictive if they decide to follow what the algorithm is saying. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that's where you get that, that lack of dynamism. And so, yep. yes, it's a faster decision, but you've calcified the decision-making process. You've concretized it. Um, and so, yes, it's, it's restrictive. It's a faster decision. It's a consistent decision. It's you know, putatively sure. consistent with the decision in the past, yep. but you, you lose that dynamism. 
You know, it, it makes me think of uh, Stephen Colbert uh, when uh, uh, for the um, the press Daniel press conference. I forgot the name of it. When they go to the White House and oh, the, the, the yeah White House correspondents dinner White House correspondents dinner, and uh, George W. Bush was the president at the time, and Stephen Colbert said this was of course very ironical. <laughs> uh, this is the best president in the history of the country because he thinks something on Tuesday. And no matter what happens on Wednesday, you will still think the same on Thursday. And I think, indeed, it might be the problem for merger yeah. control, right? No matter what is the state of the market, you will still have the same consistent decision. So, that, that, so that's right. So that, that's if you went down this path of using the internal data. So yeah. there's the internal data and then there's the external data. But you're right. And this is one of the main critiques of using the internal data. Sorry, Tony, I interrupted. No, I was just saying, and, and there's a role... As the question implied, a role for the human here to kind of you know, assess the yep. data, assess what we've been doing, and you can lock yourself in rigidly with human precedent. You can lock yourself in rigidly with you know when we're never going to update data and you know see if there's error rates. Uh, you you don't want to lock yourself in, and and so the the combination of the human and the technology really can can solve can solve i don't want to say solve because you're never going to be perfect but mitigate yeah. that problem and and the review of what we're doing is important and as anthony said part of that is the data is telling you what you know what it's doing in some sense and you don't want to get into a loop where you just say let it go but you also yeah, want right. to you know you you want to have that human uh uh, uh technology partnership if you will yeah. yeah, and, and just yeah. on the second, the, the next yeah. two yeah. points, can we use um, other agencies? Yeah. yeah, I mean, if if say in Canada we think the same way and we like the way that another jurisdiction is doing it, then yes, now, if we're on the same page. Uh, if not, if there are differences, you know that data is less predictive. It's going to be less helpful. Um, we, we've been doing this in, ta the, in tax law. Yeah, sorry. I was going to say know. it's the same thing with time. So a decision O2 might be different from one in 16, and a decision in Canada might be different from one in the U.S., and you just got to figure out whether yeah. the same factors are at play. You yeah. know, I always thought that this could be one of the side positive side effects of computational antitrust if agencies wanted to train system based on the data coming from other agencies. Uh, because in one of the projects that we published, they couldn't actually train a machine learning based on the FTC and the DOJ uh, past decisions because they are too different. It might be that they will actually lead to a convergence for the purpose of training those. Uh, systems. Uh, so yeah. this might be one of the side effects. I mean, just building off that, that is actually in part four of our paper, we discuss how different the objectives are in lots of different countries. Yeah. The different, the different competition agencies around the world have very different, um, very different objectives, different objectives within the legislature and different objectives of the agencies themselves. And yeah. so, you know, uh, to the extent that you would want to use another um, jurisdictions data, you'd have to be very careful about, you know, yeah. what is it actually teaching you? And, um, and just on the, on the last point, you know, exactly. the last point about, uh, what does this change? What data we have to uh, collect? So I think it's such a great point. This is such a great point. What you can do by doing these, looking at how we've made decisions in the past and turning it into structured data, you know, there's a good sense about what kinds of information becomes predictive. You learn, what information is actually predictive of what makes a what makes a decision, and so you know 
when, when we've been building these in tax law or employment law, we often start off with many, many different variables that we collect for every case. And then we learn that some of them aren't particularly predictive and some of them are very, very predictive. And so we tend to focus more on those that are predictive. And you could do the same thing here. And then just, you know, well, it turns out that the following factors are really important and you should provide us with this information. And then we'll be able to give you a sense about whether yeah. you, know, you provide us with this information and, and then the turnaround time between uh, giving you an answer will be able to be reduced. Which, which is a, you know, a computer scientist way to approach the, you know, the issue, I guess, right? You, you train, you try, and you will see that it fails and it is not relevant. And over time you will become better and better, uh, which is not something very natural for lawyers, but I like this approach very much. Let me move on to, to the next question. I'm, I'm wondering, um, so you then, you then argue that you, considering the consequences of past mergers, is something very important and, and that, in a sense, it begs for agencies to conduct retrospective studies. Um, and we know that they have a hard time to conduct such studies. First, it's hard um, because, you know, you could do it in so many different ways, but also and mainly, I suppose, for the lack of resources. And yeah. so I'm here wondering which computational tools do you think that agencies could use for the purpose of conducting such studies and better understanding what has been the impact of a merger? Um, and, and train, therefore, better system. So on that, we're a little bit, um, uh, we're, we're, we're not as precise when it comes to that sort of thing. So a lot of what's driving our research here is our view that data are going to be much better, not, not necessarily in five years' time, but 10, 20, 50 years' time. We're thinking, you know, data is just going to be uh, much more prevalent um, much, you know, with the exponential and unprecedented growth in data, we're going to be able to um, more quickly uh, uh, do these retrospectives. You're exactly right with the lack of resources. I mean, when we when I propose the the internal data review or these these reviews of consequences, these retrospectives, people always say that well, agencies are enormously resource constrained. Yeah. We've just seen in Canada that the Bureau has just received an, an enormous increase to their, their budget, and it's an extremely good thing. I think these, these is, um, we've seen the CMA in the UK uh, done, they've done great things with uh, data science, and Stefan's doing a, a tremendous job there. Um, what computational tools can be used? You know, we're, we're a little bit removed from that. I mean, uh, we, I have used supervised machine learning techniques to do the internal stuff, not necessarily to do these um, external consequences predictions. Tony, anything you'd like to share? I'll just say, you know, on the resource constraint, I'll just emphasize something you said earlier when you were talking about speaking to these folks. Um, you, They're underwater already, and, and that puts you at this weird point where here's a solution that's going to take some investment now, that will you know, reduce that load in the future. And so, you know, the idealist and optimist in me says, let's just do this now and, and make it more efficient. You know, the realist in me says, obviously, that's one of the hardest things from a political point of view. And, you know, we, we heard in the recent um, symposium, people talk about certain agencies around the world have really taken this to heart and others haven't. And you know, what I, I imagine will happen is, is you see, one agency really succeeding with the investment in the tools they're using, others will will follow suit. I would I would hope because they'll see the success of it, which I think 
at least on an efficiency point of view, you you will will play will pay out. So, yeah, and you know that is the bottom approach, and my obsession for blockchain, of course, leads me to prefer that. There is also another way of doing it, and it seems that as often this is the way that uh, the European institutions have, have taken. But potentially, it might be good. Uh, just a few year, a few days ago, in December twenty twenty one. The Open Parliament um, uh, changed the DMA and actually passed an amendment that would force the European Commission to conduct empirical studies and to publish that in an annual report regarding the state of digital markets. So this could be, you know, an opportunity for them to capture which has been the impacts of certain mergers. And so this is, an, uh, you know, a, a top-down approach, but could potentially lead to to some positive result. Um, now, moving on to the very last part of your article, you discuss, and this is something that was, you know, implicit in our in our discussion, the, the necessity to to keep human in the loop. Um, and I'm curious as to how you envision the balance between computable versus non-computable elements. And more specifically, do you think that we should or that eventually will lead us to change the design of agencies and that we should, for instance, you know, vote and pass uh, procedural rules so that agencies will force will be forced to consider non-computable elements in, in in computable systems. So, in an earlier paper, Anthony and I talked about um, just thinking about computational law and where we likely will see it arise. And the prediction we made was agencies, right? Because it works the best when there is a kind of the the. The human element deciding what you know on the purpose and updating the purpose and you know identifying the data and as we've talked about throughout reviewing the data and making sure we've identified you know when it's stale or or when it's biased or anything like that um, and, and that's why we will see these types of movements in law that is administered through agencies and so antitrust is so ripe for this because. It's kind of the quintessential. The statute says very little, and the agency takes takes you know all the kind of initiative. Uh, and I, I think that that will be true, and that's what we we need. To the extent you try to start legislating this, you will I, I think get into a lot of problems if you say you know agencies should use this data and only this data. That, that's going to be a, a disaster. Agencies should follow this procedure for. Uh, adopting computational law, and again, I'll, I'll say this for antitrust, but more broadly, uh, you know, that is too rigid, and it loses the benefit we started with. The, you know, we want to have yeah. this certainty and predictability without the rigidity of rules. If you try to do it legislatively only, I, I think you hit, you know, all kinds of problems like this. So um, the the optimal uh, place for this to happen is within the agency. And then to, to the last point you made, do we want to um, require the human in the loop? It, I think if, if I thought that was the problem, I'd say yes. Um, but I think it won't be. I, I don't think we're going to be like, hey, you need more administrators mm. looking at this. I, I, I think administrators will be in the loop. They want to be in the loop. If anything, we'll say, you know, you might want to Rely on the data a little more. Uh, I, I imagine that'll be the the problem we need to solve. Again, to your earliest point, we don't want to go to either extreme. But I, I think yep. the the error the humans will make will be in putting themselves in the loop too much, not too little. 
and you know also it relates before i give you i give you the word to to a cultural change um i'm 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 convinced that if i was to to offer free tickets for people to board a plane in which there will be no pilot but an ai system most people will refuse right as of today uh in 20 years from now it might be the opposite it might be that you're going to say oh a human being um i don't know this person might be depressed i don't know i don't want him to do anything with the plane we've seen that happening in the mm -hmm. past right so the ai system is much better so it's very it's going to be very interesting to see how culture will actually impact our adoption and, and the design of those systems. But Anthony, I think you wanted to react as well. Yeah, just at a, at a very high level. When you talk about the, the balance between humans and algorithms, I, I think a lot of people, they, they put this in a very black and white framing. It's like, oh, it's, it's humans or it's algorithms. And yeah. I, don't, I mean, we don't have, it's not like that at all. It's like, you know, when we think about self-driving cars, we think about lots of different levels of autonomy. And so, you know, cruise control or lane keeping technology, et cetera. Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's lots of shades of gray along the way. And, you know, as we become more comfortable with cruise control, as we become more comfortable with lane keeping technology, then we're willing to give over to the technology. Um, and, and the same thing will happen in antitrust. You know, if, if we become confident in a decision, if, we, if, we, if the agencies begin to trust their decisions, then they give over little pieces of the autonomy to yeah. um, to the, the, the computational elements. Right. But if they're not, if they don't have that trust and, and belief in the system, then they're, they're, they're going to hold on to their to their you know the human decision making power. Yeah, unless it is very convenient. I mean, I recall you know the very first yeah. use of those systems for cars was to park the car for yourself, mm -hmm. yep. right? And and that is very convenient. So why won't you? Well, won't you use it? And I guess this is what we could do with pre-notification, for instance, right? It seems to be the thing that the case handlers would love not to have to do, or at least to automate um, in part. Um, and so you, it's funny because you kind of answered my final and impossible questions already. Yeah. Um, but so you said in, in 15 to 20 years, we're going to have much better data and it's going to help in, in the different ways that you've described. My question is, where do you think we'll be in five years from now in terms of what is possible to achieve using computational tools in antitrust? And I would love, love to hear from, from you both on that one. So in five years time, what will merger review look like? So it, it, these systems are not magic. These just, you can't just click a finger and you know, you'll have a computational system that is able to you know, predict what an agency would have done in the past or predict what, where the errors are. These are not things that you can just you know, off the shelf plug in. For the internal review, the internal data requires a lot of effort in turning that unstructured data into structured data sets in order to make predictions. Then quite a bit of human effort has gone into creating these data sets um, that we've used in Canadian tax law. Would an agency be willing to invest in that? Um, I don't know. I don't know. In the next five years, I just don't know. I, I, I can imagine some reluctance. You, you, it, I would love to see some agencies, you know, investing in this sort of thing to see if they can streamline the process to yeah. uh, help improve merger review. But, you know, agencies are full of people who, um, you know, have to decide where these dollars go. And... You know, I, if if it's if it's not in their immediate interest, if they don't see immediately what the benefit of that technology could be for them, you know, it's it's I, you can understand why they would be reluctant to 
uh, invest in these sorts of uh, projects. And and to this point, what we've learned during the the first annual conference for of the project is that the way they've done it, the way they've approached all that within the CMA in the UK, um, starting from from one person in the in the in the team to now fifty data and computer scientists, is that they've created the pilots and then they shown yeah. the people that if they were to use the pilot, they have a lot to gain right now, right, yeah. immediately. And and it, it, it seems to be that when it comes to merger control, uh, a lot of that could actually be, be done. And I could see how you could prove the benefits for the case handlers, right? Not just for the companies out there, of course it is there as well, but also for the case handlers. So um, yeah, hopefully I'm more on the positive. I mean, not that you're on a negative note, but you, you I could see you have doubts as to whether this will be adopted. Um, I think it might be right. If it if computational antitrust is to succeed, this might be one of the of the place where it would start. Absolutely, I think I think I th we both Tony and I both believe that there are benefits here. Um, yeah, and it's, it's just it's just not it's just not you know let's click our fingers and off the shelf algorithms. Yeah. There's, there's investments that need to be made here, and, and, and you know if you're a resource constrained agency, it's it's not the first necessarily the first place that you would think about putting your money. Yeah, and, and it's very important to recall because, again, when I have discussion with small agencies, sometimes they come to me and they say, we, we want tools. Which tools should we buy? You know, they are even willing to buy the tool, but they think it's going to be, you know, indeed the, ma the magic trick. Um, and when you explain that it is not that magic and it requires quite some work, then this is where you have to say, but wait a minute, stay with me. I'm going to explain. Mm -hmm. It's possible. You should still do it, right? Even though it's not magic. Uh, Tony, uh, what's your reaction? I think you'll see development um, in the areas that are easy, as you said earlier, the kind of pre-merger review, because it can be put, you know, the data can be used kind of readily, it's ready-made for it today. And people, agents, people in agencies are, it's an area where they're, they're less eager to do it. They want to do something else. They want to focus on a bigger problem. But the other thing that I think we'll see over the next five years is, and to stress the big point of the paper, um, as this starts getting implemented, we see the human problem arising more and more and more. So I think in five years, what you'll see is uh, more agencies struggling with, you know, all right, we can automate this. We can put this through the, the kind of computational element, but do we like the result we're getting? And do we have agreement on that result? I think that is the short term. In the five years, that problem will arise more and more and more where you'll see, you know, the struggle to say, what is it we're trying to accomplish? And where it's clear, they'll adopt it, right, you know, immediately. Where it's less clear, they'll, they'll fight, you know, the pushback. All right, yes. And, you know, the good thing is that unless Google goes down, our video will be still up on YouTube. Uh, and so people will be able to judge in five years if we were totally off the track or on, on the right path. Um, we, are, we are humans and we typically make terrible predictions. Exactly. We are just three black boxes. That's the way it is. Uh, thank you very much for a fascinating discussion. Again, your paper is already published. If you go to computationalantitrust.com, you will direct you to Stanford website and you can access and, and read a, a fascinating uh, explanation of uh, the future of computational antitrust. Thank you very much. Have a good day and I'll see you very soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much.